Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. Returning to the bike after an injury, whether that's a traumatic crash or a non-traumatic ailment, something like an overuse injury, can be a very lengthy process, and I emphasize the word process. Not only is there a physical cost, the mental aspect of both dealing with the injury itself and the slow progress you might face can be very challenging and particularly for endurance athletes. With the help of our director of sports medicine, Dr. Andy Pruitt, someone with a 40 year career built upon helping athletes get the most from their sport and get back to that sport, we discuss the different types of injuries one can face and the various paths one can take to return to the bike. We also dive into the critical mental aspects of returning to cycling. Things like regaining confidence, finding your way in the pack, and much more. We'll also hear today from Dr. Kevin Sprouse. He is the head of medicine for the EF Education NEPA World Tour team, and he also runs Podium Sports Medicine in Knoxville, Tennessee. We'll also hear today from Petter Vakoc of Alpacin Phoenix. You may remember he suffered a catastrophic back injury when he was hit by a vehicle in training in 2018. Petter shares his story about his long road to recovery and the long-lasting impact this has had on his professional career. Finally, we hear from Bruce Bird, an elite amateur cyclist who also suffered devastating injuries and has made his way back to the elite ranks. All that and much more today on Fast Talk. Let's make you fast. Hello there, listeners of the Fast Talk Labs podcast. My name is Colby Pierce. You might know me from my own podcast, Cycling in Alignment, and I would like to invite you to join me and come and listen to my show. For those of you who are listeners of my show in the past, I'm going to have to ask you to resubscribe as we made some technical changes, some behind the scenes server jumps and everything will look exactly the same. The title of my podcast is Cycling Alignment, just as it has been in the past. If you want to continue to listen to my show, please resubscribe. If you want to join my show as a new listener, welcome. Some of my episodes are extremely dorky and technical, and others are a bit more esoteric and philosophical. I like to dig into things from a why perspective, and I also take a really deep dive on some subjects. My objective is to help people understand what I've learned in my 35 years of bike racing in four disciplines. Hope to have you join my show and take part of the discussion or simply learn from it. Up to you. Thanks for listening. Pedal fast. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Fast Talk. We've got Dr. Andy Pruitt in the studio with us today. He is our director of sports medicine here at Fast Talk Laboratories. You've possibly seen him on our recent release of the Knee Health Pathway. We're really excited to have you on board with us. Perfect guest for today's episode of returning safely and effectively returning to sport and specifically in this case cycling after injury or after illness and that's you know there's a lot of different types of things you might um might have prevented you from being on the bike uh traumatic stuff non-traumatic stuff simple stuff complicated stuff so we want to talk a lot about all of those things today 
really what we're focusing on this episode is returning successfully from injury and illness. So this isn't, we've, we've talked in the past, we did that episode 59 about, uh, that was really focused on the prevention. This is what to do when you are coming back. And it's important. I'm going to give you an example of poor recovery. Is this a, an example that of you yourself? <laughs> oh, that's me every week. Yeah, well, so no, I've that's got too many hoping, stories about myself. For. No, this is unfortunately watching a friend who was a teammate for a little bit. He was at Canadian Nationals in 2003, and there was a super fast descent. And he crashed on that descent, got really injured, and really banged up his knee. So it was a while before he came back. But he didn't the rehab, unfortunately, the, the people who were helping him didn't do the best job. And when he finally got back on the bike, he, he rode for a couple months and then his knee started hurting again. It was in his head about this crash. So as soon as his knee hurt, he just couldn't ride. So he got off the bike, took six months off, got back on the bike, did a few more months of training, knee started to hurt, and then he quit again. And he did this two, three, four times, I think. Uh, and then finally just quit cycling altogether. And it was a fortune because he was a really talented cyclist who was going somewhere. But that pain and the, the memory of the, the crash and just inappropriate rehab that didn't get him back to a good place basically ended his career. Mm-hmm. So this is an episode about how to avoid that sort of scenario. Right, right. So let me just jump in there for a second. Um, the only time, the, what I get from that story is that the only time his knee hurt is when he returned to the bike, yes. right? Which tells me that it's the bike. There's something about that motion that was inadequately addressed. Either something in his position needed to be supported post-injury or something in the injury that was inadequately rehabbed that was directly connected to the bike. So the the missing piece to get that back get that guy back going again, not only beyond the mental aspect of it, was to address what was going on in his biomechanics uh, to relieve that knee pain. Yeah, that's exactly it. And we're going to talk about this. And I'm actually going to bring in the whole, was it Einstein who said the definition of insanity (laughs) is doing what you've always done and expect something different. And that was exactly the approach he took. He could have gone and seen a proper medical fitter. Maybe that would have solved it. He should have gone to a proper PT that could have helped him with the the recovery from the injury. His solution, I think his doctor was recommending this to him, was simply rest. Take six months off, get back on the bike, and you'll be fine. Well, of course, he's not going to be fine. He's going right back to what was hurting him before, so why would it be different? Which I would insert here, my philosophy about return uh, post-injury is that we want tissues to do in recovery, what you want them to do post-recovery. So I think that's what your friend was missing, was that uh, tissue re-education. Yes. It's something I tell my athletes, and I think you're going to agree with this completely. The way your body repairs from injury and the mechanism that your body uses for adaptation from training. And remember, training is basically doing injury to your bodies. It's basically the same mechanism. And your body is remarkably good at adapting and repairing to whatever you throw at it. So if you are sitting on the couch doing nothing after an injury, that's what your body's adapting to. The whole concept of return to sport and training, as you say, are very similar. I always refer to the SED principle specific adaptations to implied demand. 
it is the same for recovery as it is for, for training. Absolutely, 100%. Petter Vakoch, a professional cyclist with Alpes and Phoenix, was hit by a truck while on a training ride in 2018 and put in the hospital. He shared with us his experience recovering from his injuries. The whole rehab after the crash was, was very long. It took me six weeks just uh, just to get out of hospital and uh, more than three months before I was actually able to move my back and uh, start at least walking uh, without a chest brace or start riding then on on the indoor trainer. So, so I was pretty much almost four months out before doing a proper rehabilitation before that was just very basic exercises i could already start riding in like lying down position with a special setup of my of my bike the biggest part of the rehabilitation was started after just under four months after the the accident and uh, it took me another eight months to to be in a in a state where i was uh, competitive again it, it took me just two months to to be riding uh, on the bike uh, in pretty decent shape, but another six months then then afterwards to to really be uh, back to full health and uh, had a green light to to race again. Yeah, that's an incredibly long road back to to what you you know in a flash you went from elite athlete to somebody stuck in a bed and 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 having to go through this process. Um, I wonder if we could dive a little deeper into that. What do you think was key to the success for you coming back? What made you a good patient? Did you just, was it all about just doing exactly what the doctors were telling you to do? Or was it um, something that you brought to the table that made your rehabilitation go uh, in the direction it needed to? Yeah, it was a lot from my side that I was really pushing the doctors and uh, the physios to give me more. And they were kind of like having fun of me because some of the doctors were also cycling fans and they said, ah, we heard that cyclists are healing uh, twice as fast as normal people. Uh, we will see, we will see. But uh, you know, then I, I kind of showed them that, uh, okay, maybe the bones, they still grow as fast as other people, but I can put more energy into into the rehab good thing was that i had really good physios to to work with and together we we made it made it challenging but but also fun the the rehab and what really helped me was really focusing on uh, how i'm getting better rather than what uh, in state i am and and how i how far do i need to get so it was necessary for me to constantly remind myself like which progress i i did since the last uh, week or so and this of course went uh, progressively more difficult because at the beginning the the gains were really really visible and uh, then later on there was just a uh, very small small improvements and there were many moments where where i was was stuck but uh, i think having the the vision to uh, come back to racing and and doing everything for that was was really something that uh, helped me to do all the exercises and uh, do it enthusiastically, always trying to do more than uh, than I was told. Why don't we start focusing a bit on specific types of injury categories, if if you'd like? Um, returning from overuse injuries is a is a common one. 
I suppose we should start with a definition here. What constitutes an overuse injury? What are some of the common forms? I'll, I'll turn that over to you, Andy. So I think there's two kinds of overuse injuries. There's extrinsic and intrinsic. An extrinsic overuse injury is training error or bad bike fit, that kind of thing. An intrinsic is basically a biomechanical uh, malalignment or asymmetry that is unaddressed. Um, you can get an overuse injury and be a biomechanical tin, which we've talked about in the knee pathways. Both are, are, are absolutely common. One of the keys I tell people is that a, a pain that goes away when you stop is probably the pain of exertion. The pain that doesn't go away when you stop is an injury. Now, delayed onset muscle soreness, DOMS, is probably the uh, exception to that rule, right? I'm one of those guys that 36 hours after that hard workout, I thought I'd avoided it. Boom. <laughs> right. So that, that is that is not an injury. That is purely the specific adaptation occurring. All right. So any extrinsic, intrinsic injuries, both both are overuse, um, overuse injuries. But I think it's that pain that doesn't go away. So I get off the bike. I've got frontal knee pain. I get off the bike. Oh, good. It's not there. Then I climb the stairs and it's still there. Mm -hmm. Right. So that is that that pain was still there after I got off the bike, even though I maybe didn't recognize it immediately. It was the stare that brought it out or getting out of the car after a seated position. We call it the positive theater sign sometimes for knees that you've you've had a hard workout and the knees were a little tender and you get off. OK, I dodged that bullet. And then you sit in the theater with your knees bent and then you get up after a two hour movie and you you creak up the incline. Right. So uh, that that pain after stopping uh, doesn't have to be immediate. It, it, it can be recognized in some activity daily living. Uh, can you create an overuse injury that le leads to uh, permanent damage or permanent pain? Oh, what a great question. You betcha. So let's think about either a tendon or a musculotendinous unit, right? So uh, the muscle is the motor and the tendon is the transmission. And the tendon hooks to the bone and actually moves the joint, right? Uh, the weakest tissues are where the muscle and the tendon intersect, Two different kinds of tissues blending together, like two paintbrushes coming together and, and, and becoming one. And that is the weakest link. The second weakest link is where the tendon inserts into the bone. Again, two different kinds of tissue trying to marry each other in, in a specific place. So those are the places where uh, an overuse injury can occur, a chronic overuse injury can occur. So I guess the, this is a good place to talk about tendonitis versus tendinosis. So tendonitis is an overuse injury of the tendon that will heal if given the opportunity to. Tendinosis is an overuse chronic situation where there's been tissue damage, tissue death, uh, or fiber tearing that has scarred. So that's tendinosis, right? It can, uh, those are two very different things that happen in the, in the same place. And symptom-wise, they're very, very similar, right? So you go to your family practice doctor and he tells you you've got patella tendinitis. If you've had it for two years, you've got patella tendinosis, right? And an MRI would identify that, and the treatment of the two are very, very, very different. So, Ryan, let's throw this to you. I'm sure you've had experiences with athletes who have had overuse injuries. How do you work with them? What do you tell them when you encounter that? Yeah, I have. When this happens, then I try to get them to now step back and we look at their their whole plan differently. And we say this is not a time to 
continue this focus on the overload, perhaps, that we're working on, and we need to take a step back and allow the body to recover. So it goes from this perspective of having this focus on overload and improving fitness to knowing that, okay, fitness might have to take a back seat while we just focus on allowing the body to recover itself and get back to baseline. So what do you do when an athlete is resistant? Let's say you tell an athlete we need to back down. They say, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to keep training. Stubborn. Well, one, I mean, I, I, don't support it under those circumstances. So I would try to, again, keep explaining to them why we're doing this and tell them that really they're not going to see the benefits. And the main message that I try to get across, and it helps having a wife who is a physical therapist that deals with this on an almost daily basis, is that we're looking at prolonging the recovery. I think that's the big negative is, yeah, you can go out and push yourself and continue to push through the pain, but you risk prolonging the recovery. And actually, I, I was just messaging with a buddy who I ski with uh, a couple days ago, and I asked him if he wanted to go up into the Indian Peaks and do, make some turns in the next few weeks. He wrote back and said he, he messed up his PCL couple weeks ago snowboarding. And of course, this is not chronic, but similar, similar vein here, but he messed up his PCL and he went out and decided to do a hard road ride and time trial at Flagstaff the other day. And he went too far. And now he, he said he's out for weeks now and, and there's no way he's going to be getting back on skis anytime soon. So this is that, that effect of doing too much. And then now we've prolonged the recovery. So I always try to advise against that. And that's really the consequence that we, that we're looking at. Something I'll bring up here that's really important when you're talking about overuse, um, and this is something I, I find interesting where there's this strange contradiction in very high-level cyclists. If you're just riding your bike four hours a week, you can have bad fit, a whole bunch of things going wrong, and you're just not on the bike enough to really cause an overuse injury, so you're probably going to be fine. The more volume you do, the more these little issues are going to quickly show up. So this is the contradiction. You take somebody who's training 25 hours a week. They're remarkably tough athletes. They have a huge amount of stamina, but they're also in this strange way a little more fragile. If their position's a little bit off, if their saddle's a little bit wrong, it's going to show up. And if they don't do something about it, it's going to show up in, in really bad ways. Yeah, the volume amplifies the the small right. issue into a big issue. So really important for any of our listeners who are thinking, I really want to up my volume. When an athlete comes to me and says, well, I've been training six, seven hours a week. I want to take it up to 11, 12. What do I need to do? And they're expecting me to give them a training plan. My answer is go get a medical fit. Uh, you know, all that core work that you told me you were doing, but you really weren't doing? Start doing it. Now you have to do it. <laughs> and you up yeah. all these things so that you can actually handle the higher volume. And when I see an athlete up their volume and not take care of all these things first, they end up often shortchanging their season because they get all these overuse injuries and can't get Yeah, training. you need to you need to modify the structure and and the systems around the engine again always using these car analogies, but otherwise the 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 supporting system isn't there and things start to break down. A millimeter of maladjusted cleat can transfer can translate to a centimeter at the knee because of the length of the tibial shaft in between. It gets magnified, right? So if you've got a cleat that's a millimeter maladjusted that's resulting in excessive medial lateral knee travel of a centimeter at 90 revolutions a minute, do the math, right? If you're going to go from four hours a week to 12 hours a week, 
that number of times that knee has done that unusual movement because of that one millimeter cleat maladjustment gets totally magnified. That's how that extrinsic overuse injury occurs. Mm -hmm. The intrinsic overuse injury, so you're a biomechanical 10, right? You're, you're Tom Boonin, right? Why does Tom Boonin get patella tendonitis? Because he can push 1,500 watts for an extended period of time over the cobbles. So you've got the roughness, the vibration, and magnitude of the cobbles magnified by his power output plus time, right? Mm -hmm. So he gets that micro bleeding at the insertion of the patella tendon into the tibial tubercle on the shin bone. It swells. It gets this little, it gets this little gnome-like, um, it's like a little gnome's nose sticking out at the tibial tubercle where that injury actually has occurred. So that is an acute overuse injury that occurred. Uh, I hope people see the difference in, in the kind of overuse injuries that can occur. One is uh, either driver error or bad position. The other is, is just uh, something inside yourself. Uh, and a biomechanical 10 gets it from being just so powerful. I don't think we have the time to walk through every scenario one would face as an athlete or that you've faced in your career, Andy, but are there general rules of thumb here for you know, the, the question of the, the day is how do I return from this effectively, safely, um, maybe even better than I uh, was before this overuse injury? Specific adaptations or implied demand. If, you, if Tom takes the time to let that tendonitis heal, it will be stronger as a result of that injury. And it will be less apt to happen again until he gets even stronger or holds it longer. But so, yes, if you allow an overuse injury to heal and rehab appropriately using the said principle, right, it should be stronger. Just like your VO2 max can go up, your lactate threshold, all those other training metrics can go up. So can that muscle tendonous unit be stronger. Absolutely. Again, one of these brought very um, broad questions that might be impossible to answer, but how long does someone have to sit out or get off the bike if they have an overuse injury? What's the rule of thumb there? There isn't one. It's really going to depend on whether it's a knee, Achilles, um, an IT band. It really does depend on the on the blood supply and blood supply to the area. Uh, is it a, is it a motion? that occurs with every pedal stroke. So there can be rest by changing the position for a time being, right? You mm -hmm. can, you can take pressure off wrists and backs by changing the front end of the bike and, and use a rehab position and they still, they still keep riding. So you can still do your base miles. You can do a lot of quality in a, if you're not worried about being arrow, right? Sure. So, um, I think that I believe in, in active recovery, active rehabilitation, doing, recreating the motion that you want those tissues to do after they're healed. Absolutely. So there's, there's no formula for that, but you know, ice, you know, the old rice rest, ice, compression, elevation, um, are really, those are, you know, for court sports and football kind of injuries, but they do apply to cycling as well. And, and coming home, you know, you get sore anterior knees, your first big spring ride. Yes. I would put ice on them. Yes. I would go through, uh, passive range of motion the next morning. Yes, I'd get right back on the bike and do cycling as my active recovery uh, to help those knees 
acclimate, right? Yeah, there, I su suppose there are certain situations where you start to feel a certain pain. It hasn't been there before. You've upped your volume. Okay, this is maybe an overuse injury. However, I'm not going to take any time off. I'm going to make adjustments, and it's, it might take a little while, but I'm, and I'm going to have to ride through some pain. Absolutely. But I'm on the right path because yep. I've made these changes. So I, I've got a recent story for you. So everybody knows Chloe Dygert. Everybody knows about her big crash. Everybody knows mm -hmm. about her 80% transected quadriceps and her, and her, you know, compound femur fracture. It's a, it's a potentially career ending injury, right? So we fit her. We, she's doing well. She's rebuilding well. Power's 50, 50. You know, it's one of those, like, can you, what a, what a great gene pool, right? To be able mm -hmm. to do this and mistakenly, she gets on a new team bike, changes teams in the middle of all this, gets on a new team bike, and there were transcribing errors in position. She hmm. gets on her new bike and goes to camp, train, train, train. Wow, my back and knee are killing me, huh. right? That's, that's unfortunate that the little numerical error, error led to this. It is so common. Oh, really? Even at the highest level, one mechanic measures one way, the next mechanic mm, measures the sure. other way. The they send the bike home with the athlete, they unpack it. Mm -hmm. You know, we trust you trust an athlete with a tape tape measure. <laughs> anyway, some of them, um, not all. So, of them. bottom line is is that so we know her tissue is acclimating really really well, and I bring her back to the lab. Spent last last Friday with her, um, get her back in the right position, which. I know is going to be the right position for her because it was successful for, but her back's already sore. So she's got to let that back resolve. And so she gets the therapy for that. The knee, one little muscle in that injury, the vastus medialis is not quite recovered yet. It's right where her scar goes through her, her quad wasn't firing quite right. So I put a little wedge in her cleat to basically support what the vastus medialis wasn't doing for her knee. The first day back on the road, she says, my back's way better, my knee's sore, still sore. Second day, my back's way better, my knee's half as sore. Third day, nothing hurts, right? So we let her make those changes. Now, I supported the lack of her VMO, VMO strength. The physical therapist next door would say, you shouldn't do that. You should strengthen the vastus medialis, and you won't need that wedge in her shoe. Well, you're talking about Chloe Dygert here. How many weeks away are we from the Olympics, right? So my point is, no, we need the wedge now. Let's strengthen her VMO, and maybe the wedge will come out when her- Two things simultaneous. Exactly, exactly. So bike fit is not a one and done. PT is not a one and done. So- I think that she's a really good example of how bike fit can be used supportively, right? And then the physical therapy and bike fit need to work together. So I can make a, a really bold statement here before we move on to traumatic and, and non-traumatic injury. And please, so Dr. Pruitt, I want to hear if you go, yep, agree with you, or no, Trevor, that you're, you're so wrong. But I'm just going to make a bold general statement of when it comes to overuse injuries, I do believe that if you take care of yourself, so you get that proper fit and make sure that your, your fit is, is checked regularly, if you're doing your off-the-bike work, if you are doing all the things that you should be doing, 
Overuse injuries are, are avoidable. They are avoidable. Um, but the trouble is sometimes we don't know what we need to avoid until they happen, right? Until they identify themselves. But yes, I think if you, in a perfect world, you do all that base work, you do all that core work, you're doing all your functional strengthening, the overuse injury probably is less likely to happen. Is that what, is that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. But, you know, so Chloe's original injury was traumatic, very much so. But what we were treating the other day was not. It was bad fit and overuse. Mm -hmm. So let me rephrase that. And I think kind of my uh, early take home here on the overuse injuries is if you do get an overuse injury, this is that, that quote of the definition of insanity is doing what you've always done and think you're going to get a different outcome. If you have an overuse injury, you need to figure out what was causing that and address that. If you keep getting that overuse injury, you are at that point neglecting something. Or it's just been misidentified as the, as the cause. It hasn't identified itself correctly yet. Yes, exactly. I always talk about pain-free time and distance, right, or, or, and intensity. So the guy says, you know, my knee doesn't really hurt until an hour and a half. Well, so you want to do all the base work. You want to do the PT. You want to do the right fit. But then you want to keep him underneath his pain-free distance or his pain-free intensity. My knee doesn't hurt unless I'm over 250 watts. Great. <laughs> right? So there's ways to train under those pain-free ceilings while you're recovering from an overuse injury. Bruce Bird, a fellow Canadian Masters rider and multi-time World Grand Fondo champion, had a severe crash back in 2016. He talked with us about the impact of such an injury, not only on his racing, but his family and job. I actually saw your crash. We were at Calabogie. There's a car racetrack, and there's a, a concrete wall there. So at the finish line, even though I was right beside it, all you can see is really the tops of people's helmets. So we're trying to see what's going on with the finish. And then all of a sudden, we just saw this rider go in the air, a bike go in a completely different direction. And it was one of those, like, did he die? It looked that bad. And we all ran to the course to see what was going on. I've got to say, I've seen a lot of crashes. That was one of the worst I've seen. So tell us a bit about it. Tell us about a bit about what you went through. So as soon as this happened, uh, my wife found out and drove with the kids to Ottawa to just be there uh, with me. And I was in, in the uh, hospital and um, waiting for an operation to fix the clavicle. But they also had a, a drain put in to drain the lung. And I wasn't allowed to leave the hospital till that was uh, fully drained, uh, till it stopped draining. Yeah. And it becomes real evident, like the, the whole idea about risk, getting back to work on Monday. Now the people at my work, I've tell them, look, I'm in the hospital. Uh, I don't know when I can come back to work. I'm a consultant. I'm a contract worker. I don't show up to work. I'm not getting paid. There's so many people in our work, you know, force that are like that. So not only like, <laughs> what was I risking? Now I'm in the hospital. I've, you know, my, I'm work, you know, my health, I'm putting a big stress on my family. I don't, uh, I, I now I'm worried about getting back to work um, so that I can continue my contract, you know, contract and continue getting paid. Um, that becomes the number one priority. So uh, like it's a real sort of shift in maturing the, a process that, that I uh, uh, went through and it's a big cost. Like it obviously it could have been a lot worse, 
uh, in that moment, you don't know how you're going to land and what damage is going to happen in just a second. Yep. Um, and in cycling where, you know, you got two wheels, you're not moving, you're falling over unless you're propping yourself up. Like we're, we know we love the feet, the air, the wind, the feeling of riding the bike, but it's inherently there's danger. So what can you do to reduce that, uh, you know, that danger and still enjoy it. So that's the kind of looking at, at, um, looking at what I love about cycling and what I want to do, uh, in the future with cycling. That's, you know, it's a little bit of soul searching I had to do. I actually think you came back a stronger rider after than you were before, and you were a strong rider before. Tell us a bit about your recovery and how you got back to, to full strength. Yeah, I thanks for asking. Uh, so one of the benefits about you know how I I crashed, it's not the cycling motion like the, the way you know you, you pedal your your legs are moving, your core is working, and and I didn't injure that so I could still spin so I talked to um I, I was I had to learn to sleep sitting up for three months you know that there's a bunch of things like basic life things that change and when you get injured uh and then you but I could I, I asked the doctor like okay how do I speed up my healing I want to heal I want to do everything I can to heal obviously I got to sleep. So I got to learn to sleep sitting up. I, you know, I've got to eat well, I, but I need to exercise. This is the only thing it's going to, you know, make you help it speed up your healing is blood flow. And because all the bones you broke are on the exterior, it's not a lot of blood flow to those areas. Uh, but I encourage you to, you know, get your blood flow up. And I thought, well, this is perfect. I'm just going to spin. I'm going to spin easy. And I'm going to see, look at my heart rate. And I was always training in the basement. And so I just got, got on that again. It's like mental health. I, and I'm just, I'm doing something. I'm, at, I'm participating in my healing and just waiting to heal. Um, so what can I do to help that? And, and then finding that balance of, you know, can I put a bit more of a load on? I could hardly walk. I was, it was, I was limping around, you know, getting myself to doctor's appointments so that I could get clearance to get back into work. And in fact, they didn't renew my contract and I had to find another job. Like it was some serious uh, life stuff. So wow. I guess, yeah, I guess I end up, uh, you know, with a great group of people. Now I'm, I'm working with um, at Scotiabank and I'm, you know, real thankful. Uh, and it's, yeah, those are the kind of things uh, I, I I kind of get thrown a little bit when I think about it because it, it's really some serious stuff. Um, you know, we put ourselves in, in a spot and I've seen some other people and good friends get, get injured and you don't, you know, some of them can't recover all the way and they, they got to make the best of what they have. And it's can be devastating. Let's turn our attention to discussion of this traumatic versus non-traumatic injuries. Simple, simple definitions here for, for these two categories, Andy. Well, traumatic, it, you, you hit the ground or something hit you and it is, it is a sudden onset event, right? It is a, uh, you were hit by a car, you crashed in a race, you, that's, I mean, you broke something. That's a traumatic event. Um, Non-traumatic is kind of what we've been talking about, right? I mean, the overuse, either extrinsic or intrinsic injury is that, is that non-traumatic. And concussion would fall into the traumatic category, even though um, there doesn't have to be, um, you know, we'll hear from an expert later in the show, you did a scan of somebody's brain, it's not going to show anything in, for a concussion. 
Correct. It's a. It's not going to show up on that MRI. However, um, if you, you can take it to the next level. You can have a TBI, a traumatic brain injury, where there would be some bleeding or some fracturing or things like that. So, but all of those I would consider in the traumatic category. Absolutely. Regardless. So there, there's levels of, of concussion. There's levels of traumatic, traumatic brain injury. And, and at the lowest level, uh, we, one of our rules for head injury is if there's any damage to the helmet, the athlete needs to stop. Um, we know now that the, well, we always have known, but the outer layer of the helmet is meant to dent easily to absorb that energy. Um, but that doesn't matter. I think if they're not getting a paycheck, they're an amateur rider, there's a dent in the helmet, their 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 party's over. But even if they were to scan that afternoon, you can get a coup contra coup or a slosh of the brain that does not cause any kind of bruising or bleeding that still will leave them with a concussion set of symptoms. You betcha. That's actually a really important thing to bring up about the helmet too, is modern helmets, they are designed to cave. It's rather the helmet break than your head break. So you have to think of your helmet a little bit as a one and done. You crash it's a bit hard, disposable. Yes. and and you crack it. That helmet's done. You you need a new helmet. And many companies have a, a crash replacement policy, a, re- a relatively inexpensive way to get a new helmet. Uh, doesn't mean you go out to your garage and hit your helmet with a hammer to get a new one, but it but there is a <laughs> there is usually a crash, you know, kind of return discount for new helmets. So Ryan, I I want to get your thoughts here on the concussion. Uh, and returning from concussion from a coach's perspective, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, I guess I can turn it into a bit of a story for an athlete where I was coaching a team and we had an athlete that crashed, had a concussion. And it, it was interesting now that as a coach, I, I had information and access to physiological testing for this athlete. It was a completely different experience. This athlete was going through the return to sport process and it was at a point in that where he, he was expecting to start feeling better, like he can get back on the bike and things were going to return to normal. Luckily, we had baseline physiological data on him. We had lactate testing data available. And when we did a follow-up test, I forget how many weeks out this was, but it was at, like I said, a point where he felt like things would be getting back to normal and he's going to start getting back to training. We tested him again and we found out it was completely not it was completely wrong. It wasn't happening. His his physiological response to the same exercise loads that we had for his baseline were way off. Every, his lactate levels were, were still elevated. The, his heart rate response was elevated. Everything was different. And that was explaining why he wasn't feeling great coming back into this. So as a coach, I was able to take this and work with him to say, okay, no, we need to keep things light and, and just really look at this long term. So we can continued to do some consistent testing down the road. And ultimately, it took about six months before he was really back. And we saw those those physiological values return to somewhat near baseline. And, and that timed really well when with the point where he said, yeah, I, I feel better now. Things feel back to normal. So so being able to connect those two of the athlete feedback with the physiological data was, was crucial for him to, to really not start pushing too hard too soon. In that first... Uh... Or, or I guess subsequent tests after concussion. Wh- what was your estimate there? Two months after the injury, or something like that, just to give people a reference point. Yeah, it was somewhere in that. Yeah, six, eight weeks, roughly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it took a full six months for you to see data that looked somewhat equal to what you saw 
post or pre concussion. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and for the athlete too, it was surprising because he was, he, he saw the data and he realized, oh, wow, I, I need to back off and just let, let the body heal and, and take my time with it. You know, there's unseen energies being spent with, regardless of the injury. Uh, and in I the healing process. I betcha. Mm-hmm. And there, there's, um, we talk about crutch walking, for example, being um, 30% more caloric, caloric expensive. Um, and that's, that's, that's something we can see. Can the athlete, I'm so hungry, but I don't deserve to eat. No, you do deserve to eat. Mm-hmm. Your crutch walking is 30% more caloric expensive. The concussion, you can't see that. Mm-hmm. But that energy is being spent. So I think yeah. what you're saying is right on the money. As much as I'm not a big fan of talking about macronutrient ratios, a lot of endurance athletes are very carbohydrate focused, and you don't need that stocked up glycogen when you are trying to recover from an injury. What you need is your building blocks, and protein is one of the key building blocks, especially if, as your immune system's wrapping up. Uh, so is fat, because the whole lipid bilayer of your your cells is made from from lipids, fat. So you need to make sure you're consuming enough of that. You're eating a high-nutrient-density diet uh, to help your body with its rebuilding. The other thing I'll bring up, and this is a longer conversation, but eating a, a more anti-inflammatory diet. So strange as it sounds, the immune system is responsible for all this repair, and it's going to create inflammation, and that's good inflammation. But when they talk about an inflammatory diet, that's where you have systemic inflammation that's inappropriate. And that will actually hinder your immune system's ability to focus on what it needs to focus on. So you need to make sure that you are eating an anti-inflammatory diet. Which brings me to something even more curious in that there's usually a weight change, a body on the scale. The scale number is going to change. And the athlete is always freaking out if it's going up, right? But there might be, Brian, a, a, a weight change based on what's going on, right? They may be containing or holding more water. You know, we're, as athletes, we're chronically dehydrated, so we, we can kind of manipulate that morning number, right? Um, but suddenly you're not sweating as much. So I think they need to be informed that that number may change a little bit while they're not as active in changing these diets. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's a regular conversation that I have with athletes that don't have concussions is, is understanding that throughout the year, there should be these normal fluctuations in body weight, body composition. And, and I think at a, at a time like that, when there's a concussion and you're recovering from it, I mean, weight, we just, almost just, let's shift it off the table. Don't even worry about it. Let's focus on the things that we talked about, the high nutrient density, the energy intake, get yourself back to, back to good health and performance. And then we'll worry about weight. Perfect. Let's hear from Dr. Kevin Sprouse, the head of medicine for World Tour Team EF Education NIPPO, about what to do if you think you, a teammate, or a loved one has suffered a concussion. The reason I thought about you for this particular podcast was the concussion. Uh, we all remember Tom Squeams crashing in the Tour of California and, and mm. being put back on his bike under questionable you know, circumstances and squirreling down the road. Um, there was nothing questionable about yeah, yeah, questionable yeah. about it, Andy. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Um, so tell us about the the current concussion protocol in the Pro Tour, and how can a amateur rider take from that protocol and and maybe use it on himself or his teammates if they crash? Yeah. Others? 
Yeah, so I think it was a really important advance this year that uh, Dr. Bigard with the UCI and a, a small panel put together this cycling specific uh, concussion. It's not really a, a protocol because nothing in it is required. It's kind of an educational document, but it's a, it's a great place to start. And it does have wide applicability in cycling, you know, not just at the world tour, but all the way down to your Tuesday night worlds, really. Um, I think, you know, so our team implemented a concussion or kind of a head injury protocol maybe six or eight years ago at this point, maybe longer, um, that really just served as what we did was pre-testing. So we had a, an idea of the athlete's baseline cognitive status. What were they normally able to do? Um, and then there were some protocols around educating uh, the staff to recognize concussion. And then what do we do in follow-up in terms of diagnosis of concussion and then return to play? And that's a lot of what the UCI addressed in here is first and foremost, um, how do we identify a concussed athlete? And cycling has some pretty unique hurdles in this because you know, if you're, if you're playing football or soccer or whatever other sport, you pull the athlete over to the side, the sideline, and you have time to evaluate them in cycling. You know, if, if it's going to take more than 20 or 30 seconds, the race is gone. It's, it's kind of, you know, you might as well just pull them out and you don't want to pull someone who doesn't have a concussion, but you always want to err on the side of the safety of the athlete um, and pull them if you have any concerns, but that requires a bit of an evaluation. So um, a, a nice thing that they did here, you referenced Tom's crash is they kind of in the document, they empower team staff to step up and say, you know, if you're a mechanic or a soigneur who's handing bottles or a director and there's not a doctor in the car, like if something looks off, take the initiative to either raise it to a medical person nearby or pull the rider yourself. Um, because ultimately we're most concerned about their safety, health, and well-being, And that I think is a big part of this document because any of us that have raced have seen crashes and any of us that have seen crashes recognize that, um, that there are people that get back into the race that shouldn't for a number, not just head injuries, but for a number of reasons. Um, and I think we all have a general idea of a gestalt when we look at someone, you know, mm -hmm. when, when we all looked at Tom's trying to get back on the bike uh, on TV, we all knew that he should not get back on that <laughs> bike. Um, and it took us time to track him down and get him off. And, and it, it worked, it worked out well in the end for him. Thank goodness. Yep. Um, but anybody along that route, anybody involved with the race, uh, should feel empowered to, to take that step. So what, what are the most obvious signs, right? I mean, um, one of the things I tell people, if the helmet is cracked, take them out of the race. That's, that's, yeah. the, if there's a dent in the helmet, you got to remove them regardless of what. So what, what else can our folks uh, look for? Uh, what can that wife look for when her husband comes stumbling home after a crit crash? Yeah. So I think it's important to recognize that the symptoms of concussion evolve. They're not just suddenly present. You know, you break a bone, it's broken as soon as you break it. But a concussion, sometimes you don't have symptoms for hours later, even that night or or the next morning. And so you have to look at it as a, a constant reevaluation. The most common symptoms that you'll see 
um, you know, if somebody is unconscious, they're stumbling, um, you know, they, they have difficulty with balance and getting back on the bike. Those are all pretty obvious, right? Um, the ones that are a little more, probably more common and a bit more occult and harder to pick up are uh, sleep disturbances, maybe changes in, in mood or just kind of how, how the person generally is in a given scenario, uh, headache, which they may or may not report, nausea, which they may or may not report. Um, so they, the symptoms can be kind of wide reaching. Often they just feel off. They have a hard time putting their finger on it. And when we do testing and we look at things like balance and cognitive function, we're able to delineate that with, uh, when we give them certain tasks, but if not given those tasks, it just kind of manifests as this, I don't know. I don't feel, I just don't feel great. Um, and so having a, a a high suspicion that there might be a concussion is, is the first step for somebody who's either hit their head or is kind of helping someone who has hit their head. Um, and that's a good time to, to not brush it off, but, but uh, seek out you know, proper diagnostic care. So let's think about an American crit situation, right? Where they might get a free lap. So you might have 30 to 60 seconds, right? Um, mm -hmm. to make an avowal before you throw them back into them. So got any quick, you know, what steps one, two, three for, uh, the. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, assuming they weren't unconscious, they aren't vomiting anything like that. You're not concerned about a worse injury, right. a neck injury, and, and you can't just brush those off because those things happen too. Um, but assuming they get back up and, and they're a little dazed and you're trying to figure out, are they just, isn't an adrenaline rush from the crash or maybe a concussion? Um, one, look at their helmet. Like you said, Andy, I think uh, it can be a little tricky because with the way helmets are designed now, they, the outer shell dents pretty easily. Um, and you can certainly have visible damage without a concussion, but for a non-professional athlete in particular, someone who's not getting a paycheck, um, why risk it? If there's visible damage, just step out of the race. Um, if, if there's no damage to the helmet, you can actually get a concussion without hitting your head, just the whiplash uh, of, of going down. So there may be no damage to the helmet and you can still have a concussion. And then uh, an easy thing to do on the sideline or the side of the road in this scenario uh, is ask some basic questions. Um, what day is it? What race is it? Uh, what lap are they on? How much time is left? You know, who's leading the race? Some things that any racer would know um, and see if they can answer those appropriately. And that can take 10 seconds, 15 seconds. Um, the other thing you can do is balance. Uh, you, the, the riders are wearing cleats, which make it uniquely difficult to balance. And that's something you want to test. You can do a one-legged balance um, or even often what we'll do in the, in the world tour is if they clear those first hurdles, put them back on the bike. Um, but they'll be coming back. Often they're even out of the cars, right? So we're way off the back and we can watch them. If they're having trouble maintaining a line, you know, they've got a wide road at this point and it's closed. If they're having trouble maintaining their balance in any way, um, you know, we'll talk to them again and then maybe pull them. So the same things can hold true in this, in this crit scenario, ask them some basic questions, look at their balance, and then recognize that symptoms are evolving. And if they get two laps in and they've got a pounding headache, like you can pull the plug then. Um, 
as an athlete, don't, don't feel like just cause you got back on your bike and everything was fine that you don't have a concussion. What's, what's interesting is that fast talk did a whole, did a whole podcast on, on concussions. Um, so a lot of this is, is, um, review for some of the listeners, but I think the real takeaway is, is that, that the, if the pro tour has empowered everybody in the caravan to take charge you know, of somebody with a potential concussion, that ought to, that ought to trickle down, right? I mean, that, that, that is your teammates ought to take charge your your family, your, um, so I think empowering other people at every level of racing to help take charge is, uh, uh, I think that's the takeaway for us here. I think another sure. important message here, you, you just talked about be able to maintain balance. If you're in a crit, that's a technical race where you need to be at your best. So, I know some athletes want to pull that, well, I'm tough, I can handle it type mentality, I'm going to get back into the race. But it's also important to consider you're getting into a pack of maybe 100 riders. And if you aren't there, if you can't maintain your balance, it's not only you who's going to go down again, but you're going to take a whole bunch of riders with you. So you have to do that assessment of, am I safe in this field? And I didn't, I'll give you an example. I didn't have a concussion, but I was at Cascades was suffering from really bad dehydration and was having a problem holding my line and had to say the same thing. I'm like, I'm actually happy to tough through this because I'm an idiot, uh, but I'm going to, I'm going to hurt somebody else and, and had to pull out of the race. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And it, as you point out, it, it applies to really any injury or, scenario you might come across in cycling that's it's often the threshold that we look at for you know hand injuries shoulder issues um you know it may be the kind of thing where it's safe to continue now it's not safe to continue with a concussion i'm not saying that but you may have an injury that you think you can push through or you may just decide to push through a concussion you know in an ill-advised manner um but unless you can control the bike uh, in these very tight situations at high speeds, it is totally irresponsible to put the rest of your uh, colleagues there at risk. And, and that, that I think can be freeing too to some people because we're taught as, as endurance athletes to push through anything. Um, but I think all of us can kind of sympathize with this idea that, okay, I can push through this, but it's just not responsible for me to do with respect to the safety of my fellow competitors. So, you know, this non-traumatic category is essentially what we've just been talking about, the overuse injuries. We, we did a episode number 59, uh, quite a while ago now with, with Dr. Pruitt, that gives a lot of, uh, background information on this type of common injury in cyclists, uh, preventative measures and that sort of thing. So, um, any, anything else to add there or should we move on to traumatic? So I think the, the one thing I might add there would be the disc, low back disc injury that occurs, occurs over time, but there is a moment in time when the, the disc ruptures or, mm -hmm. or bulges and that moment is traumatic, mm -hmm. right? They didn't fall off. They didn't crash. They're probably in a really aggressive position. Tell low. Me about it. So, uh, the dam we, broke. We, the dam broke. You didn't fall off. But that moment at that, at those cells, that is a traumatic event in those cells. And the, the healing response is a traumatic one in that area. So that would might be that, that one 
do tendons rupture? I, I, I've got a, a patient with bilateral quad tendon ruptures that occurred a year apart, all from cycling. There are moments when that chronic overuse injury, that tendinosis, has a traumatic event without an impact, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there are those, I think, the, the Ooh, tendinosis right, yeah, yeah. that ruptures or the disc that acutely, traumatically ruptures in the middle of a hard climb, right? Those are, those are borderline, maybe gray area between the yeah. two. Yeah. And you keep looking at me. No. <laughs> I'm the one that just had you the fusion. Just, you had your uh, uh, disc burst. when You were probably brushing your teeth at the time. Actually, so flossing. Doctor Pru was there. Combing your hair. He, he was. Uh, I've had all these. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Got good, thick, lush hair. You know. It, I know. It's it a takes strain. A lot of effort to. <laughs> no, I was at. Uh, this was Tour of the Hilo. Was it 2011? You were supporting our team. Uh, second day, we were getting towards the top of the big climb. There had been a, a, an attack. I actually think it was Lachlan who attacked, and went with it. And was going, oh, this day is great. And right as we're getting to the top of the climb, we go around this sharp right where it also dips down really quickly off camber. And I twisted with my body and the the road took my bike the other way and just got that extreme shooting pain in my back, dropped down onto my top tube. I'm amazed I didn't crash. Fortunately, momentum carried me over the hill. But then we hit one of the most technical descents in North American racing. And I'm like hanging on to my handlebars, unable to move at all, trying to go down this descent. And I went from being in the breakaway to the last rider to the bottom of the hill. Somehow managed to finish the stage. The time trial was the next day. I remember waking up, you were at our house. (laughs) You took one look at me and you're like, Trevor, come over here and gave me some sort of horse tranquilizer (laughs) so I could get through the time trial. (laughs) He was in his time trial position even when he wasn't on his bike. Sure. Yeah, we, we had to <laughs> lay his bike over and lay his bike over, get his leg over, and kind of get him upright and pushed him down the hill. <laughs> so it's one of those one of those times, though, where the bike position actually was supportive of his low back. And that's not uncommon, right? Because we, we have multi-point contact with the bike. So there are injuries that are actually supported in the cycling position. And that would be in one of them. And the next day was the crit, I think. And I basically said, just get me on my bike. And <laughs> Yeah, I, I was purely, I just survived this crit. And, yeah. and you did what I needed to survive. And that was about all I could do. Well, well, that brings up a question in my mind. Was this advisable behavior? Absolutely not. <laughs> Completely not. But as the team doc, he was in no danger, right? And um, he's a good enough bike handler. I don't think he was going to endanger anybody else. I made a decision, mm-hmm. right, that to let him participate if it didn't endanger himself or anybody else. It wasn't going to make him worse. I remember some of our conversation, and the fact was the next day was the time trial, which if I took the risk and, and crashed or whatever, I'm only hurting myself and not hurting anybody else. So we just, and I knew I wasn't going to do a good time trial. So it was just get through the time trial. So we just made the decision, get through the time trial, and then we'll see how you feel the next day. And it was actually feeling much better by the time we got to the crit. So we made the decision to keep going. Had the crit been the next day, we probably would have had a different conversation. Yeah, yeah. 
what makes a good uh, patient, I guess, in your mind, Dr. Pruitt, when it comes to these traumatic type injuries? What do you want a person to do? What do you want to see them do? Athletes make terrible patients. Uh, from on one, one part of me says they make terrible patients. On the other hand, I say they make great patients because they're so motivated. And most of us are pretty coachable as athletes. So if the medical provider, the therapist, whatever, sports medicine dog, whatever it is, you know, approaches that athlete correctly, right, and say, okay, here's how we're going to get you back on your bike, when we're going to get you back on your bike, blah, 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 uh, that they're going to be way more cooperative than if you use the rest technique. Rest is overrated as a recovery tool when it comes to injury. It really, you have to balance the energy spent in the healing process with the energy spent um, with returning to sport and then the energy spent psychologically. It's a, it's a triangle of trying to get the athlete back healthy. Let's talk about some other traumatic injuries here. Uh, loss of skin is a big one for cyclists. I, I, I don't know any cyclist that hasn't lost some skin at some point. Um, and if you're not familiar with Tegaderm, when you start riding, you become familiar with Tegaderm. And that brings up a Trevor story. Trevor, tell us about Tegaderm and your relationship with Tegaderm. Uh, I have a longstanding and good relationship with Tegaderm. Do you, have, but do you have stock in the company? I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was racing with Rio, actually, Dr. Pruitt gave us this big medical bag. We had a... We were an amateur team, but we had a better medical bag than any of the pro teams. And we probably had $10,000 worth of Tagaderm, something <laughs> crazy in this bag. I know I wasn't the only one who experienced this, but I personally caught somebody sneaking into our van from another team trying Ooh, to steal Tagaderm our Tagaderm. <laughs> so we, had, we learned we had to lock down this bag and we had to keep an eye on it because everybody wanted our Tagaderm. So what is Tegaderm? <laughs> there is a good question. I'm going to give you a bad answer, but the, the way it's I explain it to people. Thing. It's a magical thing. It, it's, so before I experienced Tagaderm, I always used uh, Neosporin, which is an antibiotic ointment. So you'd put that on the wound, and then you would cover the wound with a bandage. And the issue with that is you have to constantly be replacing that bandage, or it's going to start sticking to the wound, and, and that's what you don't want, and the wound can dry out. Tagaderm is an antibiotic ointment with this plastic uh, bandage or covering that actually comes off and goes on very easily. So you can put it on. You can leave it on much longer. You can shower with it. And when you take it off, it's not going to take the wound off with it. It's basically a second skin, if you will. Now, second skin is a trademark brand of a, of a moisture uh, retaining dressing, but uh, if I don't, if I go into small letters, like second skin, sure, um, it is. It has an adhesive boundary right around the edge, and you you have a piece that's big enough to cover your whole wound. But the thing with your with your antibiotic ointment or cream is that they actually suffocate the wound. It doesn't let the wound breathe. Um, so if you clean the wound appropriately and then you can place a, a layer of tegaderm over it and allow the tissue to do what it would normally do. It does create uh, a, a fluid boundary in there. There's an excrement from the, there's debris from the healing wound. There's blood cells. There's hopefully not pus, but it can be. But it, it creates a, 
a contained system um, where the tissue layers can heal from the ground up. So there's several layers of dermis, right? There's several layers of skin. So it's going to heal. It's going to granulate, if you will, from the bottom to the top. And this tegaderm second skin layer allows that to happen. And you can either, you can buy it. It used to be really rare. And it was only your medical bag that I made for you that had it. You can go into yeah. the big supermarket, Anywhere, right? uh, big drugstores now and buy it. Um, and it's, and it's, it's crucial, but you can leave it on for days. You can bathe and shower with it and you can actually drain it. If the fluid builds up under the tegaderm significantly, I can stick a little insulin needle in there and draw off that excessive debris fluid and leave the tegaderm intact. If it springs a leak, then we just take it off and wash the wound again and, and replace it. But tegaderm, you know, good cleansing of the original wound and immediate dressing with, with, uh, Tegaderm, or there's, there are other brands now uh, that the drugstores are making, but Tegaderm is the, it's kind of become the Kleenex of uh, sure. second skin dressings. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. Tegaderm is, is amazing. The one big advice I'm going to give from having had lost a lot of skin over my career is do not let it dry out. Oh, yeah. Well, that comes to any wound. If a wound is dry, you want it to be wet. If a wound is gooey, you want to dry it out. <laughs> so right. there, there's that there's middle. Happy medium. Exactly. Yeah, uh, and is it? It is a medium in the um, in the tissue itself. Yes, exactly. but if it scabs over too quickly, it's painful, extremely painful. I find it doesn't heal as well. It can scar more. Oh, yeah. I, I like to keep it. Get the tagaderm on it. Keep it moist. Let it heal without scabbing for a while. So, in the old days, you, again, we used an ointment with a dressing and burn netting. That's how we held things in yep. place. And burn netting—it was—it was a badge of honor. If you had burn netting on, you—you know—you, yeah, and you were—you were a warrior if you had burn netting on. And now we—we we don't even have to see the wounds anymore. I mean, they're really well hidden uh, with with Tegaderm uh, and and these other other second skin dressings, uh, and they work so much better. Yeah. So don't let a wound. There's nothing worse than crashing in Europe and getting on an airplane, and your clothes are all stuck to you, and you might even be stuck to the seat uh, when you land back. Hours later, yeah. <laughs> I've had it happen. Right. Does that sound like a personal experience? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of skin, uh, we touched upon it in episode 59. Do we want to just briefly mention saddle sores because a lot of people deal with them? What's the best way to care for a saddle sore? Well, there, there's a couple of different kinds, right? So there's a frictional saddle sore that is occurring because um, you probably have one spot where you interface with your saddle that is rotating or uh, creating a, a friction patch. The, the hair is meant to be a, a like little ball bearings, right? That's a friction reducer. Um, but in today's in modern grooming, there's a lot of hair removal. So we, now we have stubble uh, in place of a, a long hair, which acts as a little ball bearing. So friction is one of them. Now, a rainy, rainy uh, race, a lot of debris on the road. You get a lot of sand in your chamois. So you can have a perfect bike fit and still get frictional saddle sores with, with debris, right? Um, the other is, is, a, is a pressure sore. And so we talk about uh, ischemia. Ischemia is when there's no, the capillary blood flow is being pushed away from the tissue. So if you take your pink palm and you press on it and it makes a white spot, that's ischemia. So if I'm sitting on my saddle and I sit there long enough and that ischemia lasts long enough, I'm actually going to get some cell death 
in that area. And it will ultimately, the tissue will die and some kind of rupture might occur. Um, and that's, that's, that's a pressure sore that needs to be, that's a fit issue, right? Um, and then the, the last one is a, is a hair follicle. So I guess there's three different kinds. There's a hair follicle that's been sh sheared off and has become infected. The hair's probably grown around underneath the skin a little bit. Uh, and they're all basically wounds, Chris. They're, they're all basically different kinds of wounds. Some of them are addressed with permanent bike fit changes. Uh, some of them are addressed with uh, temporary donutting or, or chamois alterations to relieve the pressure in the area. Um, the dirty chamois, the rainy, the rainy day uh, issue um, can be devastating. I think of a Tom Boonin story back in 2012 or 13. He'd won the tour. He won his fifth Prairie Roubaix in April, and he was riding support in the Vuelta that fall uh, on a really rainy day, and he'd been you know, charged of doing his job, going to the front and drilling people, and it's pouring rain and the sand and Tom developed a, a, a saddle sore in the neither regions between his scrotum and his rectum. And he rode there so long and it got numb that he actually wore a hole in his tissue the size of a dime that was... I have a picture on my phone, Chris. No, really? thank okay. you. Uh, <laughs> Put that Never been so happy Trevor's that Twitter we are feed. audio only. <laughs> <laughs> But my, my point is that, that he was so tough, he just rode through it. I got to do my job. And I saw him 60 days later and still treating this saddle sore. So we combined our work with a dermatologist and actually designed a saddle specifically for Tom's saddle sore. Hmm. And, you know, the rest is history, as they yeah. say. He came back and... and uh, uh, he thought it was a career-ending injury. We thought it was going to end his career. That's crazy. And, and I guess I want to briefly mention the fact that um, you, you occasionally hear people having to undergo surgery to sure. remove something down there. What Can it happen such that you know, you you ride a race, yep. your chamois gets dirty or whatever, and it irritates something and, and maybe yep. just a, some like – Something grows down there, yeah, let's say, yeah. and but over time it gets bigger and bigger to the point where it has to be removed. Absolutely. So you can get a cystic scar in the area that has to be debrided, no, no doubt about it. And there are some there are some cysts that do occur in the perineum, um, regardless whether you're a cyclist or not. So if you're unlucky enough to get a paddle cyst or something like that in your groin. Um, and be a cyclist. Yes, it's going to have to be surgically addressed. Uh, of course, labioplasty in the in the female athlete is is far more common than than we ever thought. Um, and, and so, yes, there are labial reconstructions being done because of of uh, and that is a saddle sore. Mm -hmm. right? Sure, it's a type of saddle sore. The only thing I'm going to bring up because I've seen this uh, fairly often is. Cyclists will get regular saddle sores, you know, the pretty typical ones that, that we get, and uh, go and see their GP, and their GP immediately recommends surgery. I think surgery is a last, last ditch. Resort, you have to yeah. be very careful about that. Yeah, and, and even steroid injections. Um, so I remember uh, Ron Kiefel in the middle of the Tour de Pont had a big old saddle sore, and he rode a whole stage without ever sitting down. He was in the break. <laughs> uh, he did the whole stage without sitting down, and and came to the clinic that night, and and actually said, "Here, here's here's the here's the upside to cortisone, here's the bad side to cortisone, and here's your risks." And we had like five days to go, 
And we just put a little low-dose steroid right into that cyst, and it was shrunk down by the next day. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history. So mm-hmm. there, there are times when you can do an interventional medicine for a severe saddle sore, for sure. Um, but surgery is absolutely the last resort, for sure. Now, you mentioned the chronic reoccurring saddle sore. So I, one of my interview questions for somebody coming in from medical bike fits, do you get saddle sores? Are they always in the same place? And so that tells me that they're pivoting on a on an ischial tuberosity, which they may have a pelvic asymmetry where they're pivoting on one area, or they've got an old scar there, or whatever. So that that's really a diagnostic clue is reoccurring saddle sores in the same place. Yep. And a little trick that nobody ever believes me about until they try it and then say, "This is the greatest thing in the world. Why didn't I do this years ago?" Uh, if you're doing a, a big training camp or a big block, double, double chamois. chamois. I knew you were going to say that. So double chamois, I'm going to be devil's advocate here, is actually raising your saddle, right? So your effective saddle height goes up by those few millimeters. And you say, oh, it's not that big a deal. A millimeter at the foot is a centimeter at the knee. And if that causes, if you're on the borderline of a high saddle, you're you're a guy that likes to toe point and you ride a higher saddle and you put on two chamois or chain saddles to a thicker pad uh, on the chamois, uh, on the on the saddle to go to camp. You have affected your bike fit. So caution there. I would rather see you use a medicated petroleum jelly in your crotch instead of the double chamois. So petroleum jelly, Vaseline, Kleenex. I mean, you know what I mean when I say the Kleenex thing, right? Nobody ever asks for a facial tissue, right? You ask for a Kleenex. Right, You probably get a puffs, but you ask for a Kleenex. So um, Vaseline is the Kleenex petroleum jelly. Sure, there are other brands. There are other brands. And I usually take uh, an antibiotic ointment and mix it one-to-one with the petroleum jelly. And that that is my friction reducing saddle cream. You're not mentioning chamois cream. I am not. Which I want you to explain why for people out there that are it, like, why, uh, well, why isn't I don't he just wanna, saying go to my local? Throw them all under the bus, but they're <laughs> they're water soluble, so they're going to be absorbed into the skin and disappear. They're going to be sweat off or rained off in time, so you end up reapplying chamois creams multiple times during a day. Um, how we see these, and they come in this big scoop of chamois cream, wallop in the in the crotch, and you go, that's probably a, another problem that needs to be addressed here. Um, I'm not a fan of water soluble chamois creams. Yeah, uh, but so the downside to petroleum jelly is it 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 does make your personal grooming and cleansing much harder because you do clog up some pores. So you really do have to get that alcohol astringent in there earlier. Good. I mean, get out of your chamois, get your crotch clean, right? <laughs> yes, no lounging around. There's always that guy the in, the, in, the, in the buffet, you know, and he's chamois at the end of a long tour. But anyway, get out of your chamois, grooming, cleaning, all those things are really important if you're going to use the petroleum jelly. So I would prefer medicated petroleum jelly versus the second chamois. So let's turn to that question of how much the the body changes with some of these issues we've been talking about and whether you know, you can come back from that as is, or if things change so much that your body's not the same and, and you have to do things differently. Let's, let's address that. That's a big question, but how do you, how does an athlete understand the changes that may have taken place? Obviously it depends on the injury. So, um, go back to Chloe Digert had a femoral fracture with, um, 
operative repair, right? So there's a really good chance that that she might have a shortened femur at the end of or lengthened femur. It both can happen with surgical repair. So um, that any kind of operative repair, clavicle, uh, femur, tibia, forearm, all of those things are going to re- potentially result in a segmental length change that needs to be addressed on the bike. Short forearm is a different brake hood placement. It's, it's, it, there's lots of ways to address it. The less obvious is the um, uh, significant crash with a knee sprain, right? So there's, there's levels of return, and we talked about this earlier. One is range of motion. So if I get back on my bike and I don't have full extension or I don't have full flexion of my knee, that is going to show up in either the top or the bottom of the pedal stroke, which, you know, saddle sores are, are rarely, the cause is rarely at the, at, the, at the saddle. It can be because my knee is either overstretched at the bottom or overflexed at the top and I'm rocking on the saddle. So range of mo- return of range of motion is is crucial. Uh, the most extreme thing I've ever seen was a guy that spent two tours in Vietnam, un, uh, unwounded, came home in, in L.A., got a stray bullet through the window on the freeway, shattered his elbow, and he had basically got a frozen elbow at like 30 degrees of flexion and a, and a, and a short forearm. We actually built his bike with two separate stems and two half handlebars. Um, so his elbows and hands are in two very different places. But his torso angle and everything was perfect once done. So recognize these asymmetries. His is gross, right? Yeah, the the that was painfully visibly obvious what he what we needed to do for that guy. A gal like uh, Chloe, that's going to be millimeters hidden behind gigantic quads and an aggressive athlete. So those millimeters may or may not be important to recognize. But as she returned to the bike, it was all about range of motion at the knee first. Then it was about strength. Now we're working on endurance. That, that's how you come back from these traumatic, these traumatic injuries. Back, I mean, you think about range of motion in my back. Well, yeah, hip hinging, forward flexion are crucial to coming back from a back injury on, your, uh, on, on the bike. So recognizing them either temporarily or permanently in, in bike positioning are, are crucial. And, and Ryan, I want to have you jump yep. in here. Um, what are your thoughts on restoring function to an athlete that's coming back from an injury like this as a, from a coach's perspective? Yeah, I think as a coach we have, I mean, we're, we're in communication with these athletes pretty consistently we, and we know we can help them get in touch with the appropriate people. So I'm always looking to try and figure out who can I get this person in touch with to help in a specific area. Is it like the sports psychology? Is it the PT? Is it medicine? What areas can we work with together to involve, yeah, more experts to try and get that body back to being the same? So it's really, I sort of look at the coaching as becoming this this connector sort of model. Ryan, are you are you in favor of one-legged uh, on-bike exercise? Actually, after having an injury and coming back from it, I am now. <laughs> I, yeah, I had uh, I had my left leg had to be straight for I don't know it was four or five weeks after I tore open the skin and or right over the patella, and I did a lot of single leg pedaling, and it was interesting coming back from that because I the 
the neuromuscular piece was really missing and firing that quad was not happening. So when I was on the bike, I was, I was doing unilateral training on the good leg. The other leg was just hanging out there, but it was this gradual progression of doing very small leg raises with some weight on the, on the affected leg. And then and being diligent about that. And then over time, that leg was gradually able to come back to pedaling again. But it still, it, it took weeks before that, that neuromuscular function was back. I'm a big believer in the bilateral education, right? I mean, so if I'm firing all my quad muscles on a good leg, there is some neurological bilateral education occurring even in a, in a casted opposite leg. So I, I am a believer in one way. Not everybody is a believer because you do develop some bad habits and <laughs> saddle sores, uh, et cetera, in one-legged pedaling. But I am a big believer in unilateral training. So I think the last question that we need to ask is what happens if your departure from your sport has been quite long so that there's actually essentially some rust built up in, in muscle memory and in, in race memory and you have to start addressing that now that you're coming back to your sport. And I actually think this is somewhat relevant right now because we have a lot of people who, even though they weren't injured, haven't raced in over a year because of COVID and are now getting back to racing. The thing that comes to mind is back to basics. We get this, uh, we, we have this long break. And like you said, we there's rust. We need to get that off. And many times, well, I'll go to teaching bike skills with people. Many times what I find is that as people are putting years and years into cycling, their speed starts to increase. And what happens is that speed masks some of those fundamental skills. When we take the time away from cycling or any sport, well, now all that speed is gone, the fitness goes away with it, and now what we're left with is the basics, those fundamental principles. So I think coming back and starting with those fundamental principles are really the key, in my, in my view, to help start that process, too, because it's, it's where, where we need to begin, and that's what's going to help us build from there. You know, the, the gyroscopic effect of wheels turning and momentum are, are great maskers of our lack of bike handling skills, right? So slow riding is probably one of the first things that I would have somebody return to, right? I mean, um, mountain biking, slow riding skills are, are way important. Gravel in the middle there somewhere. But road cycling, man, the gyroscopic and momentum is, is such a huge, well, look at me, I'm a great cyclist. Um, until they go into a two-wheel slide in a gravelly yeah. corner. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's the first thing is that yeah. the, with doing bike skills with people, it's always, let's slow down. Let's see just how do you balance on your bike when we take you down to two miles an hour? What, what are you seeing from the lockdown, right? I mean, the people training indoors. And so they're really, really fit one way, but are they unfit in other ways? Yes. Yeah. Ryan, you, you want to take this one? <laughs> Go ahead and I'll just, jump in. Okay. I think we just experienced this last week on Sunshine Canyon when we were riding together. And I think you talked about it and I mentioned it later in the ride as we were descending. We've been spending a lot of time on Zwift. And yes, the fitness is great to see, but then... Once we go outside and we going down Sunshine Canyon, the upper part is all dirt and it's loose and it's it's full of braking bumps. Start leaning the bike over, all of a sudden, you didn't lean your bike for six months on on your Zwift and, and on your trainer. So now that feels very awkward. So it's it's in part it's kind of dangerous to just go and jump back into it. Yeah, even Peter Sagan even mentioned it. You know, he was off because he had COVID, and all of a sudden he's back in the peloton and he he's not the brave 
Peter that we have seen in the past, right? He's he's a bit more cautious, and he he says, "No, I, I'm having to rebuild my skills." So even at the highest level, the world's best bike handler is saying, "Wow, I'm rusty." I, I have fully experienced this. I mean, I I had a while that I was away from at least domestic pro cycling. Yeah, I remember the the first time I went back. So I went back to Cascades in 2017. I was terrified going. Wait, I, I used to bring the team here and show them how to race in a peloton. Now I'm the guy at the back going, oh, my God, this is scary. You, you, it is critical to, to rebuild those skills. You can really lose them. And, yes, I agree. If you've been injured or because of COVID, you've been riding on Zwift, I think that's great. It's going to keep your fitness. But go find some friends who are willing to do this ride with some friends get used to riding with a group before you attempt to get into a race yeah and that that um confidence you know we have that that zone that that comfort zone that we have it shrinks down over time so now we need to figure out how do we gradually push that get into that that reach zone where it's a little bit scary but still controlled and then we can start to build that confidence again well if we think about what now are called cat fives back in my day, they were cat fours, right? I mean, the cat four crashes were just planned on. I mean, you just put a medical person at every corner of a cat four crit um, because they had been training alone. Most of them are new to the sport and they had not gotten together with a group to do fast pace line work and descending work in a group that, that there's only one way to learn it. And that's why we put them all in the same category. Yeah. So there's all kinds of skills and there's all kinds of fitness. Right? I mean, the, the, you can tune the motor, right? But man, the bike handling skills in a group are, are they, they also need to be trained as part of this recovery process. Yeah, much overlooked, much overlooked. The most dangerous rider is the rider with a giant engine and no pack skills. So make sure you're not that rider if you've been off for a bit and you get back to, to racing. We don't just change physically after a bad crash. It can also have an impact on us mentally. Let's get back to Petter and what it was like for him mentally to return to professional racing. In my head, I was, especially at the beginning, really, really okay because uh, my accident was so bad that I was actually happy that I was alive and that it seemed like there will be no or not any like significant injuries that that will be un, uh, impossible to to deal with or or to to cure. So already that I was like, okay, that's that seems like I can I can come back. So let's let's do everything to come back. And I I never had uh, really doubt if if I want to keep racing or if I if I had some some doubts about like feeling feeling down or or you know not not motivated or. Uh, to, to do the rehab and everything was didn't last long because I knew okay I, I wanna I wanna come back to to the state where where I can race and okay then I can uh, I can decide if if actually I, I want to keep racing or not but first I want to be in that position so actually that was the moment when I had to start working with a psychologist more more closely it was only at the moment when when I was uh, already healthy but then uh, was difficult to to race again and uh, I had to deal with the with the stress to race and, and to be in the peloton and and uh, decide if it's if it's something something that uh, I want to keep doing could you take us a little bit inside what those conversations like were like how how did you 
how did you regain the confidence to be able to race side by side in a, in a peloton like that, going at high speeds, overcoming the fear that you probably had? It was a gradual uh, development because at the beginning I was I was really scared, but uh, I came to the first race and I was like, okay, I want I want to race, and the first kilometers were were really stressful. But then, uh, yeah, my my initial role was was mainly to to pull, so that was that was easy. But then came some some moments when it was like crosswinds or whatever, and I had to fight for position. And at the beginning, I was really not not comfortable. But there was something that uh, that gradually improved. And uh, I think it's it's normal to have this fear at at the beginning. It's natural, but you just get more comfortable in the position by by getting there, by getting in this position again and again. And uh, then it gradually gets gets easier. I think it's important to know that you probably will have to deal with that if you have any significant injury, and that it will take time before you will get fully comfortable again. It's just to accept it and and work on it uh, step by step. And I would assume that uh, the same goes for the the skills that you may have lost, the technical skills, um, to to get back in the bunch it just takes time and experience to do it again or did you go out and practice you know descending on your own or cornering on your own to be able to then jump back into a pro race yeah this this wasn't really uh, such an issue i have to say because the skills that it it went quite quite fast was for me the challenge was more psychological i remember like coming back from other injuries like for example just broken collarbone it was at the beginning was difficult uh, because you are racing pretty fast again after your crash and then before you get comfortable in the downs like this it also takes uh, takes a while so so i think because it took me so long so long time of training uh, before i got back to racing my my skills were were back where where they needed to be and i was i was comfortable on the bike uh, I just had to get used to again to the pressure of of racing. Is there anything else I didn't ask you about that you think is an important aspect of coming back from an injury? I think it's it's important to to realize that when you when you are injured it's it's normal to to feel down and and to be disappointed and have a lot of doubts. It's good to really go through this phase relatively quickly and then focus on where you are now instead and how much what, what progress you do instead of where where you used to be before the injury and uh, this is really something that that helped me to to get through it and i think i had on average maybe one day a week during the whole year of coming back when i felt really down and like stuck that i don't do any progress or or whatever but uh, the other six days i was always uh, focusing on uh, how uh, how far did I get already since the injury. So, I mean, realizing that you will have a lot of, uh, lot of uh, doubts and, and bad moments, uh, and it's normal, but uh, you can always just uh, let them go and, and focus uh, most of the time on the, what you are achieving. Okay, well, I get to start out the take-homes for this week. So... Dr. Pruitt, why don't we start with you? What is your one-minute take-home from this episode? If they don't recall or take away anything else, it would be to recognize the unseen energies that are needed 
to return from either injury or illness. And it is, there is a cost of cellular repair that you will see in your diet and in your sleep, and, but it's unseen but needs to be recognized. Yeah, my, my take home would be, you know, it's a process, this returning to the bike, returning to your sport of choice after an injury is a process. It takes a lot of patience. There can be a, a, a big physical toll. There can be a very big uh, psychological toll. Um, I would recommend people not uh, cut corners. <laughs> I've seen that in the past where somebody might uh, say, 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 for instance, they had a, a shoulder injury. Um, they go to rehab, they start doing the things they're supposed to do. They see the progress they want to see. They get to a point and they say, ah, I am better. They go to rehab, they see the progress they want to see, um, and they get to a point, maybe it's only halfway through what was originally slated to be um, the rehabilitation, and they say, I'm fine, I'm done, and they stop. But they stop too soon, and slowly but surely, the injury sort of maybe crawls back into their life and becomes a, a an issue. And maybe they lose little range of motion. Maybe they they uh, something something prevents them from going back to the therapist because they've lost that momentum, and it just leads to a long term issue. So don't cut corners. Be patient and reach out to people that may have also had the the same type of injuries as you. Uh, helps you set expectations and figure out what the road ahead looks like. So my takeaway is take the long-term view. When you're coming back, know that this will be a process and it's not just a quick hop back on the bike and start pedaling again. So take that viewpoint, understand that you've probably lost some things. There might be some mental blocks that need to be overcome and work with your coach or another expert or a couple experts that can help you figure out a plan to hit these milestones along the way so that you can get this nice feed forward effect and, and make the progress that you're hoping to see. I actually think there's a lot of take-homes from this one, but I'm going to focus on something I brought up a few times, which is the definition of insanity is doing what you've always done and expect something different. If you've been injured, just saying, I'm going to try to ignore this and go back to what I'm doing, isn't the best approach. You need to make sure that you can come back as effectively as possible. You might need to make some changes. If you've been injured like a broken bone, you might have to change your, your bike position. Make sure that you are coming back in a healthy manner and making the changes you need to make to not put yourself back to where you were. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode and become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Andy Pruitt, Dr. Kevin Sprouse, Petter Vakoch, Bruce Bird, Ryan Kohler, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.